turn to the book of Genesis. We've been in a series that we've entitled Joseph, Seeing the Good in God's Detours. And we have seen already how Joseph has experienced detours in his life. Now, for many of us this morning, we've experienced detours. We're driving along, uh, going a very familiar way. And then we see the road signs before us, those orange signs that drive us crazy that say road close, detour. And we really have no idea where we're going to go. We're going to follow the signs. But we recognize usually one thing. Detours always take us farther than we want to go, and they keep us there longer than we want to be there. Detours are never fun. Now, we can endure a detour, but one time I was driving, and I went from one detour into a second detour. Now, that's even worse, right? That's what Joseph experienced. Joseph experienced two detours in his life. Now, they weren't small little uh, minimizing detours, detours that he could just walk away from and say it's not a big deal. No, Joseph's detours were huge ones. Remember, he's serving his father. He's going to check in on his brothers. And detour number one comes. His brothers, while he's still far off, conspire to kill him. When he comes close, they grab him, they assault him, they throw him into a pit, leave him for dead. And through the course of events, uh, they get the bright idea they'll sell their brother into slavery, into Egypt. And that's what they do. That's detour number one. Joseph, 17 years of age, thinks he's going to live just a great life with his dad and his family. And all of that changes. Detour number one. Detour number two comes. He's brought down into Egypt, 17 years of age. He's sold as a slave at a slave auction. A man by the name of Potiphar comes and buys him, brings him into his house to serve as a slave would. And everything's going well at that point. Joseph, we learn the Lord is with Joseph. He's, if you will, being elevated because of his faithfulness and his service to his master. And because God blesses and prospers everything that he does, Joseph starts moving up in the household ladder, if you will, and becoming second in command. Of all the things in Potiphar's house, he is even, he speaks of having equality with Potiphar uh, as the master of the home. But detour number two comes in. His wife sees the success, that is Potiphar's wife sees the success of this great servant Joseph. We are told that Joseph is a handsome and well-built man, and she begins to lust after him. And leaving, not leaving her lust in her heart or in her head, she longs for uh, a greater involvement with Joseph and, and begins to try to allure him to herself, even to the point of grabbing him and, and trying to compel him to sleep with her. He doesn't. He's a faithful man of character, a man of integrity, and he does what we should all do in moments of sexual temptation, and that is flee from it, run away from it. And that's what Joseph does, but in the process... Uh, His garment is left. And because of that, the wife comes up with a story. And detour number two is, even though he had done everything that he had called to do, was called to do, while he was a faithful servant and slave, he finds himself in prison. Not for a short amount of time, but for years. And today we come to detour number two. and, And in those detours, we have to ask the question, as Joseph did, is God, why are you allowing this? God, why do you allow these bad things to happen to me? But we're going to look especially at uh, the issue that's going to come, and that's detour number three. Because as we learned in the process, Joseph goes into prison, and we learned last week that Joseph does exactly what he did in Potiphar's house. He's faithful. He serves. Whatever is asked of him, he does it, and he does it with a smile, and he brings what could be a totally terrible situation in the prison to being something of, of worthwhile service. 
The, tell, the text tells us in Genesis chapter 40 that he prospers in all that he does, and the Lord's with him, and he cares for the fellow prisoners to the point that the warden says, I want to make you assistant warden. That's mind-boggling. It was mind-boggling that a slave would become second in command in Potiphar's house, and it's mind-blowing that a prisoner would be made uh, assistant warden of all the prisoners, he himself still being a prisoner. And that's exactly what happens. Things are going well for him. And in that process and in that time, Joseph meets two other fellow prisoners, the cupbearer of the king and the baker, two guys that had heavy involvement with Pharaoh. And they had been thrown in prison. We're not told why they're thrown in prison. We're not told how long they were thrown in prison. But they're in prison with Joseph. And as Joseph is serving the rest of the prisoners, he comes to know these two men, the cupbearer and the baker. One day when he's serving uh, them, doing the daily duties that he had been called to do, he sees that they're downcast, they're sad, they're discouraged. And he goes to them and he asks the question, why are you so downcast? What's bothering you? And each of them say together, we've had dreams. Joseph knows what it's like to have dreams. In fact, Joseph had experienced dreams as a young boy. And he knew that the dreams were messages from God. And he says, listen, I know my God interprets dreams. So tell me the story. I'll go to my God and I'll seek an answer and I'll give you the answer. And so they begin to tell their dreams. The cupbearer says, here's my dream. I'm uh, sitting at the, uh, the throne room of the king. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But, but there's some symbolism that I don't understand. And Joseph begins to tell the story of what the dreams mean. He says, in three days, cupbearer, you're going to be restored from your prison cell back to being serving uh, the king, Pharaoh. And you're going to be restored in all of it, and, and your time in prison's going to be done. The baker, all excited, says, hey, interpret my dream. Here's my dream. And he talks about bread baskets and birds coming, and you can read that in Genesis chapter 40. And Joseph says, listen, I'm going to interpret your dream, but it's not a good interpretation like the cupbearer. In three days, Pharaoh's going to lift you out of prison, and you're going to be killed. Good news bad news he's faithful in telling both of them but we're told in the text in genesis chapter 40 that when he tells the cupbearer in three days you're going to be restored and you're going to be reinstated as the cupbearer of pharaohs i want you to do one thing i was faithful in interpreting your dream i have one request would you remember me would you remember me when you come back into the throne of pharaoh Pharaoh is the one who could set me free. And so he articulates to the cupbearer, remember me and, and tell Pharaoh my story. I'm here in Egypt under duress. I was kidnapped, if you will, by slave traders, by the treachery of my brothers, and brought as a slave here. I used to live in the land of Hebrews. Now I find myself in Egypt. And I find myself, he says, in this prison cell under no sin of my own. I'm an innocent man. And you could share that story with Pharaoh. Then maybe Pharaoh might hear my story and may release me from prison. We see the humanity. We see the brokenheartedness of Joseph not wanting to spend the days in prison. And who can, who can fight that with him? We would all want to be released. So what does our text say? Notice in our text this morning, I'm going to only look at just a couple words in the Bible this morning. But in Genesis chapter 40, if you don't have a Bible, turn to page 34 in the Bible that is in the pew rack in front of you. Our text articulates the following. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And then chapter 41 begins after two whole years. 
Now, it would be really easy for us to read verses 23 of chapter 40 and zoom into chapter 41 and, and just move on. Joseph was in prison, and now he's out. That's not what the author Moses wants us to do. He uses the phrase two whole years. I want you to understand that what he's really saying is two whole, long, 730 long, enduring days of prison. Joseph waited. He waited. Why two years? Why wasn't he released right away? Why wasn't his request answered? The reason why, verse 23 of chapter 40, the cupbearer forgot Joseph. He forgot about him. And what we're going to learn today, if you will, we spend a lot of time, if you will, on the black of the Bible, that is the words. I want to be very specific today and deal with the white part of the Bible, the space in between those words. Because if we don't create some space there, then we miss out on two very long years of waiting, trial and tribulation in the life of this man, Joseph. And we lose out on the lessons that come. There are three lessons this morning that I want to share, but let me ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, we ask for your blessing on your word. Your word is good. Your word is right. It, it can do so much in our lives. It changes lives. As we've heard this morning from Kathy's own lips, how it has changed her life. Lord, I know how the word has changed my own. And so I ask that it would change those that are around us. Teach us these valuable lessons this morning from this very short passage of Scripture that we may put ourselves in the life of Joseph and grapple with the truths that he had to, and in turn, that we would do so in our own lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My message this morning is very simple. Forgotten. Forgotten. We, by people, are nat- by nature forget things, right? Who hasn't forgotten to pay a bill? Some of you have forgotten to pay bills two, three months, and the lights turn off, and you're like, oh, huh, yeah, I forgot that. We've forgotten anniversaries and birthdays. Right now, some of you are sitting there going, I don't remember my anniversary or my wife's birth date. We forget things. Uh, we forget uh, appointments. We get, uh, you know, we have all this technology on our computers and on our, our phones that, that help us. I was walking uh, out this morning after the first service, and one of our parishioners in the first service said uh, it was Grandparents' Day at one of the schools. And one of our young ladies in our church was brokenhearted. Her, mom, her grandma and grandpa said they were coming, and grandparents' day came, and grandma and grandpa forgot. And the heartbreak that we can give to people when we forget them. Uh, we even can forget children, right? The Badals have. You know, on Sundays, it's difficult for, for us as a family. We try as a family because it's a busy day. Amanda serves on the worship team. Of course, I'm busy with the different pastoral uh, roles that I play here on a Sunday morning. And so Sunday morning, man, we got to plan our Sundays in the Badal family on Saturday to make sure everything's all set. And usually we take one car. We, we go as a family, and we come home as a family. And that's because then we can keep track of where everybody's at, Right. Well, one day, Amanda had to serve on the worship team. This was some years ago. Noah's probably eight, Joshua's about four, and Luke's probably two. And uh, uh, Amanda said, well, I'm going to take off. You're you're working on your sermon a little more, getting ready. I'm going to take off. And usually we'll talk about who we've got. You got one, two, and three. You got one and three. You got two. Let's make sure we're we're taking care of this. Well, on that day, we assumed too much. I assumed that Amanda had one, two, and three. One and three were with Amanda. 
And I came down the stairs, said, ready to leave for church. And I remember just doing what parents ought to do. That last final, hey, is anybody here? Last, last call, heading to church. Nobody answers. It's a quiet house. I get in the car and I head here. And I come down and Amanda's finishing up practice. And she says, where's Joshua? That's four years old, Joshua. Four-year-old Joshua. I said, he's with you. Come on, don't be funny. You know, and she says, he's not with me. I brought one and three. Where's two? I said, he's not with me. And dread began to come over this dad. Where's Joshua? He's at home. We have forgotten our son. And of course, all manner of images come into mind. I'm envisioning that he's juggling um, flaming knives in the kitchen. Okay? And so I'm kind of freaking out. So I get on the phone. We have a, a still an old school answering machine that literally you can hear in the room that's playing. So I call and I'm like, Joshua, it's daddy. Hey, I'm coming back to get you. Don't be afraid. Everything's fine. Just wait for dad. He doesn't answer, of course. So then I'm like, well, it's going to take me 15 minutes to get home. So I'll call my dad. He's my mom and dad only live a couple minutes away. Dad, go over and, uh, and get Josh. Just tell him we're on our way. No big deal. Let's not make a big deal about it and not scare him. My dad says, hey, I just headed out for church. I'll run right over. Everything will be fine. He says, stay on the line. That way you'll know everything's okay. So my dad then is fiddling with his phone, and, and I hear him get out of the car and walking up to the front door. Or he walks up to the garage. I tell him the code. No, son, I can't work. This is dumb technology. Okay, dad, go to the front door. My dad does the unthinkable. Joshua, open the door! Open the door, Josh! And I'm like, Dad, don't scream like that. You're going to scare the daylights out of this kid. He doesn't come to the door. The kid's freaked out. You know, who is banging on this door? You know, I'm not going to the front door. He's freaked out probably under sheets and covers and all of that. And he's all worked up. I have to come all the way home. And Joshua says, Dad, you forgot me. How could you forget me? Now, I want you to know everything's fine with Joshua. After six months of therapy, he started using complete sentences again. And we're encouraged by that. But we forget things, right? I mean, who can forget the movie Home Alone, right? You know, a whole movie based on the idea that in the hubbub of a, of a holiday trip... But the family forgets one of their kids and all of the chaos that, of course, comes as a result. We forget things as human beings. But who can make an excuse for the cupbearer? The cupbearer who had learned that he was going to be set free out of prison by this man who has served him so faithfully over the years, has interpreted his dream. Joseph has one request. Remember me. Tell my story to Pharaoh so that I might get out of this place as well. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear. The cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. What does that teach us this morning? I think there are three lessons this morning that I want you to look at. And we'll deal with it very quickly and we'll move on with our day. Number one, I think we need to look at what it means to care for people. I think we've got to look at what it means when we trust people. And I think we need to worry about or look at what it means to wait when things aren't going the way we want. So caring, trusting, waiting is what I want to address this morning. Notice caring. How in the world, the scripture says in verse 23, the cupbearer forgot him. Now let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He struggles from dementia, okay? The Bible doesn't say that. He seems to remember at a later point, as we'll learn next week, that Joseph is in prison. But he has some level of dementia. Something is keeping him from remembering the need of a guy 
who is asking for his help. And in that we see how we ought to care and some of the things that can get in our way of caring for those who need us most. I want to speculate for a moment because we're not told that one of the reasons why the cupbearer forgets Joseph, number one, is because of his duties. Because of his duties. Write that down. Imagine with me for a moment that the cupbearer is sitting in prison just as he has for some amount of time. And all of a sudden, the king's men come in. They grab the cupbearer now exactly as Joseph had said it was going to happen. Three days. Day one goes by. Day two goes by. Day three goes by. The door opens up. Hey, cupbearer, let's go. Pharaoh wants you back as his cupbearer. You're about to be restored. He gets cleaned up. He puts on his robe and and all of the wares that he would have had as a cupbearer. And he stands before the king, and the cupbearer, of course, was the one who would test all the food before the king would eat it, and he's back in his role. Now, I want to give the cupbearer the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt is that the cupbearer knew, listen, the reason why I was in prison, the scripture tells us, is because the pharaoh had been uh, angered by something that he had done. We're not told what him and the baker had done, but we know that, listen, whatever he had done, he hadn't been a good employee. We also recognize that the baker had lost his life because he had failed Pharaoh in some way. So let's give the cupbearer the benefit of the doubt. The reason why he forgets Joseph is because he wants to be the best employee he can be. I get a second chance. I've been now re-promoted back to my spot, and I want to make sure I'm the best cupbearer I can be. I'm not going to bother Pharaoh in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to leave it be. What I'm going to do is serve and make sure my boss is the happiest guy in the world. Let's say that's the reason that the cupbearer forgets him. What a great reminder for us to be careful not to allow our employment to trump relationships to be careful that we don't make our boss the happiest person in the world when our spouses and our children are unhappy and that's a hard thing to do where do we draw the line as a man who is busy doing two careers right now where my time is is spent up in a lot of work how do I draw the line of of doing a good job for my employers and taking care of my family, and taking care of the needs of those around me. Some of us have the personality that we're task-oriented. That it's all about the task, getting the task done. And we love giving you guys jobs, right? Because you are so faithful at getting the job done. The problem usually is, and I've got a little of this in me, is that sometimes the task means we've got to run over people. We've got to... Uh, maybe cause some consternation and frustration in the people around us because the task is number one, people are second. And what we're learning from the cupbearer is he elevated his role, his position, and he forgot the one thing that got him there. He forgot the guy who had ministered to him in such a way that one thing that he had asked, not a lot, it would have been a five-minute conversation. Listen, Pharaoh, first of all, I want to thank you for my opportunity to have this job back. It is such an honor to serve you. And can I tell you just a quick story? Will you give me a couple moments of your time? When I was in prison, I had a dream. And I didn't know what to make of this dream. It was the craziest dream I've ever experienced in my life. 
And there was a Hebrew man in here. And this Hebrew man was amazing. He was one of the most faithful guys I've ever seen. Worked harder than anyone in the prison. He came and he interpreted my dream. And you know what? His interpretation was spot on to the very last detail. He nailed it. And, and the reason why I tell you this, Pharaoh, is a couple of reasons. Number one, this guy is in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He's far off from home because he was stolen out of his land and brought to Egypt. And number two, he is the most incredible guy I know. Maybe you could use him. You're always saying that you're looking for great people. Here's a great guy you could do. Five minutes. I didn't even take five minutes. I took two. He could have done that. But what he did is he focused in on, I'm going to make sure I do the best job, make sure that my job is secure. I'm going to make sure my duties, the task gets done, and I'm going to forget people in the process. And it's a great reminder for us that people should never, I'm sorry, projects should never trump people. It had for the cupbearer. He had forgotten. He did not remember Joseph. The second thing I want you to think about is maybe it was the duties, and again, I'm speculating, might it have been the distance? The distance. Now, we don't know the distance from the prison cell to the palace room. It may have been a couple blocks. It may have been a couple miles. We've got to assume that the prison and palace were in the same, in the same vicinity. The distance I'm talking about is the kind of rooms they were. The culture shock that the cupbearer went through was quite amazing. Think about that for a moment. Probably laying on the ground in mud, chained, you know, instead of Joseph, and he's in the same prison as the cupbearer was, chained by his neck and chained by his feet. we got to believe that chains weren't 100 feet long, right? So maybe they were 5, 6 feet long, hooked to a wall. No sanitation, basic necessities of food, gruel each and every day. He's tattered clothing that he's wearing, listening and hearing the cries and murmurs of fellow prisoners, going from a place of utter disaster to a place of incredible luxury. The palace hall. His clothes would change. His smells would change, of course. He would be showered and cleaned up, have the greatest linens upon him. He would probably be given ornate jewelry to wear. He probably had the finest affair. Listen, he is eating the king's food, the best food in all of Egypt. And I wonder if not, I wonder if not, the distance of what I'm living in now and what I lived in before was so great that he said, I don't even want to remember my prison experience. I don't want to remember it. You see, for some of us, we don't care about people who are far away from us. You know, care many times is what we call an area code issue. We care about the people that live close to us. Our family, and that's right. Um, our friends who are closest to us, which is right. But when we get outside of our area code, our care for people starts to wane. Why? There's a distance. I read an article that one of the great things about technology is that we can care about people in ways that we never used to be able to a hundred years ago. Let me give you an example. There was a picture, a video that was shown uh, from the, the absolute horrors of war in Syria. You saw the picture, the little boy. Remember the little boy in the ambulance? He's got all the dust because debris has fallen upon him. He's bleeding. He's crying. I mean, if you have a heart, your heart was broken to see this boy because we know his family's gone, so he's an orphan. 
He's injured, and here's the reason why. Because he lives in the city of Aleppo, Syria, where the biggest and most severest of fighting is taking place in that civil war. And we see the human side of warfare. This little boy, no more older than my youngest son, Luke, and my heart welled up with compassion, with sympathy. You see, technology moves Tim, who lives in Hinckley in America, all the way to Aleppo, Syria. And if we didn't have that, I would never know of that circumstance. But what we do is we change the channel. What we do is we say, well, that's their problem. They created it. They're the problem. You know, they're not as civilized as we are. As if this little six or seven year old boy had any uh, involvement in global um, uh, relations. Like he was involved in this whole process that threw Syria into the situation that it is. That he's been a part of the, the superpower war that's going on between the U.S. and Russia with regards to this. And we say, you know what? Hey, that's their problem. We got to deal with our problems. I want you to recognize the Bible uses a word that I think is of great importance sympathy. And sympathy is what the cupbearer lacked. Because the, 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 the cupbearer moved from being in a place of, of total uh, despair to a place of great luxury. And what he lost in that process because of the distance of the two was his sympathy. You know what sympathy is? It's a compound Greek word that means to share in someone else's sorrows. So what you do is your friend in another area code or the person in the other area code has a problem. Sympathy moves us from where we're at in an okay place to the place of pain. We enter into pain of another's. Here is what selfishness can do. Selfishness says, I'm in the palace. I don't need to worry about the people in prison. And the cupbearer said, everything's good with me, so I don't have to remember Joseph. I don't want to even think about Joseph, because here's where I'm at. And some of us have the cupbearer spirit within us that we are okay, so we don't want to even worry about those. We lack sympathy. We lack a heart for those who are hurting. Might have been his duties. It might have been the distance. One other thing might have gotten him. The delights. The delights. What do I mean by that? The cupbearer is enjoying all the good. There's no crying or screaming in the uh, palace hall. There's festivities. There isn't gruel. There's the finest affair. There isn't tattered clothing. There's the best of the wardrobe. Everything is different. Now, of all the two that I've already brought up, there's no premise in Scripture that says that one of those things are it. I'm speculating a bit. I think I'm doing so in an objective way. But the book of Amos, you don't have to turn there. In the small book of Amos in the Old Testament, Amos tells us something very different. In Amos chapter 6, write this passage down. You can follow it later on. Amos 6, starting in verse 4, Amos is prophesying to the people of Israel. And he says, listen, be careful that you don't put your focus and attention on the good of, the, of what's going on and miss out on the bad things that are taking place. And in Amos chapter 4, he says the following. He's prophesying to the people of Israel, and he says this. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch them out uh, on couches. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs 
to the sound of the harp. And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. Literally, what it is is in a time of trial and travail, don't go as if life is just going to be perfect. Don't think that just because you've got food and you've got music that life is good. And then he uses an example. He uses an example and he says, listen, don't be one who drinks wine in bowls and anoints themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved, listen to what he says, over the ruin of Joseph. What? What, Amos? I'm following you. We shouldn't party when we should be pitiful. We shouldn't throw festivities when we should be fasting and praying. But now you say, don't drink wine and bowls and anoint yourself with the finest of oils and yet not be grieved over the ruin of Joseph. What Amos is saying is there's, there is a guy in the past during Joseph's life who forgot Joseph and lived it up, right? So then I got to look and I got to say, who's Amos talking about? Is Amos talking about Joseph's dad? Nope. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see that Joseph's dad might have done that. Nowhere do we see that Joseph's brothers would have done that. Let's look at Potiphar. Nope. It doesn't apply to Potiphar. The only person in Joseph's story that would have forgotten the ruin of Joseph and had the opportunity to be lavished with lotions and oils and the finest of wines is the cupbearer. The prophet Amos says, don't be a cupbearer who got ascended into uh, the throne room of the king and forgets Joseph because life is too good. One of the things that we can do is when life is good, we can insulate ourselves from the hurts and cries of other people. Now, it's not just an area code thing, a distance thing. What we do is we just begin to close ourselves off. Our callousness closes us off because we want to have a good time. And so we don't want to be involved in other people's business because that's going to crimp our style, if you will, or cramp our style. Let me give you an illustration. You saw we were down in Atlanta. I took a flight late uh, last Sunday, and I was tired. I didn't want to talk with anybody. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything. And I'm a big guy, so just plane seats are no fun, okay? When I get on a plane, people are begging that I don't sit next to them, okay? You walk down the aisle and they're praying, please don't sit by me, please don't sit by me, please don't sit by me. I hate flying. And I get sit in a middle seat between two women that know each other. They're playing the game, you know, the two cans with the string. The two cans are my ears and the string's my brain. They're talking to each other, and the last thing I want to do is listen to them, and they're talking about absolutely nothing. And I don't want to go off on them, because at some point I'm going to have to tell them I'm a pastor, and that's not going to be a good testimony. So, so one of you, and they're in the sanctuary, said, listen, I know you're going to be on a flight. I know you don't like flying. Hey, I got some headphones. Put these headphones on. You won't hear a thing. They're called noise-canceling headphones. What a blessing. I put those headphones on. I couldn't hear him anymore. I was in bliss. 
I insulated myself from what they were dealing with, what they were talking about. Listen to me. What a terrible illustration, right? No, it's a great illustration, and here's why. When we are delighting in the good things, or we got money in our checking account, are not fighting with my spouse, my kids are all doing fine, uh, everything seems to be going well at work, what we do is say, listen, I like my life, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on noise-canceling headphones that I don't have to hear of the needs of others. I don't want to hear them. I'm enjoying the wine. I'm enjoying the lotions. I'm enjoying what it's like to be in the palace of of Pharaoh. I don't want to worry about anybody else. And we put these headphones on in our life. And people will say something to us. You say, what? What? I didn't hear you. Well, why not? Because I'm not listening. I sure would give if I knew there were issues going on. Well, the problem is you got headphones on. You're not hearing about the needs around you. Because you want to be left alone like me. You don't want anybody in your business. Just leave me alone. Let me delight in my life. Let me enjoy myself. Don't involve me in your garbage. Don't involve me in your stuff. So the cupbearer, Amos is saying, is enjoying his life so much that he cannot, it does not want to be burdened by Joseph's issues. How true is that of us this morning? That we turn away from the hurts and pains of those close and far from us because we're too busy enjoying our life, enjoying what we think is our money, our resources. And we see someone in need and we say, just give me some, give me some blinders, give me some headphones so I don't have to worry about them. I want to forget them and remember them no more. How does your caring live itself out? Do you care for others? Do you minister to others? Or are you so busy in your duties or in your distance or in your delights that you forget the hurts and pains and the struggles of those around you? Caring. Second lesson. Trusting. Trusting. We see that Joseph is uh, now having to trust in a man. He knows that the only way out of prison is that if uh, the cupbearer shares the story... If the cupbearer gets a moment, I wonder if in that moment, during that time, those two years, that each and every day that the prison gate was open, that Joseph didn't run there thinking it's my day of release, right? The cupbearer did his job. And so the chains are being uh, let go, and and Joseph runs, and he says, it's my day of release. I'm going to be set free, only to see the gate shut again. But didn't the cupbearer do his job? Didn't the cupbearer remember me? Why, why haven't I been set free yet? And in there, there's a lesson. Two years of waiting on a guy. And I want you to know two very important lessons with regards to trust. Number one, people are going to let you down. People are going to let you down. It's a part of life. The Bible tells us over and over again to be very careful that we don't put our trust in other people. Here's why. The Bible tells us by nature, by nature, not because we make bad decisions or anything, but because of our makeup, we are not dependable people. Let me give you some passages of Scripture for you to chew on. The first one is Isaiah 2.22. Write that down, Isaiah 2.22. Here the prophet tells us what God is articulating. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. What he's saying there is don't trust creatures who could be here one moment and not be here another because they don't have oxygen. They're not very dependable, right? Tim could be here today and gone tomorrow because his body doesn't get enough oxygen and he dies. 
How truly trustworthy is an individual who could be here today and gone tomorrow? The second thing we're told, Jeremiah 17.5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh in his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Is the Lord saying that I can't trust anyone? That we are altogether totally untrustworthy? Yes and no. So let's look at this first of all. What the Bible is saying is that man by nature is untrustworthy because of his frailties. Therefore, we need to be careful that we don't put our ultimate trust in another human being. Now, the Bible tells me in the book of 1 Corinthians that love hopes all things, endures all things, believes or trusts all things. So if I'm going to show you love, then I need to trust you. But how can I trust someone who is completely untrustworthy? Well, they're not. Listen, my wife 20 years ago made vows to me that I believe she's been faithful to. And I can trust her. I can trust her because she has proven herself faithful. Now, can my wife say, I'm going to be with you for all the rest of our days? Nope. Amanda doesn't know how long she's going to live. Can Amanda say with 100% guarantee that she will always remain faithful to those vows? Nope. She can't. She knows, has no idea what a day might bring. Can I believe her that there's a good probability she's going to be faithful? Yes, here's why. Because in the first 20 years, she's had a whole lot of reasons to get out of the marriage. But she hasn't. She's remained faithful. When I've screwed up, she's been faithful. When things haven't gone the way we've wanted them, she's remained faithful. She has remained committed. She is a dependable person. Now, she can't promise me things that she can't live up to. Because she's a broken, fallible individual. So she can say, here, I strive for this. I I want to do these things and I commit to these things. But listen, I have no idea what will come. And so every one of our promises are, if you will, disclaimed. There's a disclaimer to them. There's an asterisk to it because we are fallible and broken individuals. As a business person, my my customers can know and my employees can know that I'm a faithful employer and business person. When I say I'm going to be somewhere, I'm going to be there. Now, is that always true? No. There have been events where we've had accidents on the way to an event. There have been events where the wrong food has been brought. There's been events where we've been late because of all manner of breaking down of equipment and stuff like that. Can I tell my customers as a caterer, I'm going to be there with 100% probability. The answer is, help me out. No. Now, I can show them that I'm trustworthy, and I can show them all the events that I've been on time for, all the events that have had the right food, all of the times that even when bad things have happened, we've done everything in our power to be there at the right time, right place, serving the right food, and getting the job done. I cannot with 100% certainty tell someone I guarantee it. That is what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying, listen, by nature you're an untrustworthy group of people, human beings. And here's why. You're frail. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow. There's a lot of circumstances that you can't predict. There's a lot of circumstances that keep you from fulfilling your task. 
And so there's two things that we need to learn from this. Number one, we need to recognize that because man is untrustworthy, Christians should be the most dependable and trustworthy people around. What that means is that maybe the other employees in your workplace are undependable. But you're going to be dependable. That you can't trust somebody with money. You can trust so-and-so with money because they're a follower of Jesus Christ. You can depend on them, not because they promise with 100% guarantee they're going to do something, but because there's a good bet on them that when so-and-so says they're going to be there and do the task that's before them, you're going to do it. Why? Because you serve a dependable God. You're modeling your life after a dependable God. So people will let you down just as the cupbearer let Joseph down. He blew it. But what Joseph learns is therefore, we got to turn to God who's wholly dependable. God is utterly dependable. He is completely faithful, right? His mercies are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of God. And we serve a faithful God, therefore we ought to be a faithful people. When we say we're going to do something, as God says He says He's going to do something, He does it. And we should be the same way. The Bible says we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Because we are speaking truth. We know what we're committing to. We know what we're paying oaths to. And so when we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Listen to me. When Christians say borrow money or take out credit, you better come back and pay that bill. Because you're a bad testimony if you don't. And so you've got to be wise. If I'm going to borrow this money, I'm going to pay this money back. And I'm going to know that what different things can come in my way that might keep me from paying off this loan. I'm going to think about it before I get into it. Because the worst thing that can happen is I sit before a banker and say, hey, I can't pay back my bill. I'm not dependable in that way. Christian spouses. If you're going to commit to things as a Christian spouse, you better live that out. Why? Because Jesus proved to us when the going got tough, the tough got going, right? When Jesus Jesus faced all kinds of incredible hardships, He didn't say, you know what, this whole redemption thing of Christians is too hard. I'm out of here. He endured the cross. He scorned its shame. And He did it with the joy that was set before Him, the book of Hebrews said. And so we get working, and we endure, and we stay committed to the principles that we're a part of. We're dependable people. Why? Not because we're superhuman, but because we serve a God who is dependable, and we're going to model our lives after it. People will let us down. You have been let down. Some of you have been let down by your spouse. Some of you have been let down by your children. Some of you have been let down by your parents. Some of you have been let down by your employer. Some of you have been let down by your church. And that tells us people are going to let us down. But because God has modeled dependability, we're going to be faithful like Him. The cupbearer forgot. But Joseph shows us while the cupbearer lets people down, cupbearer, or I'm sorry, Joseph is a picture of Jesus who remains dependable. He kept serving. He kept honoring God. He kept honoring others, caring for others, ministering to others, trusting, caring. Finally, We need to look at waiting. Waiting. Oh, I hate waiting. Two years, it says. Two whole years. In your Bible, if you underline in your Bible, underline the word whole. 730 days. 
I don't know how many hours is in those 730 days. I don't know how many minutes. I don't know how many seconds. But that's a long time. It has been said that waiting is perhaps the hardest discipline in life. We hate to wait. We hate it. Even a couple minutes out of our time is time wasted in waiting. I've been, I always am amazed at how people market different services. And we have a, we have billboards all around the Fox Valley area for a local hospital that is uh, advertising uh, the service of mammograms. Maybe you've seen it. And, and if you think about it, mammograms are an important thing. It's an area of women's health that, that helps detect cancer. It's near and dear. It's what, what captured uh, my wife's cancer a year and a half ago. That's an important thing. And, and so I'm amazed at how they advertise mammograms. You would think that this local hospital would advertise that the mammogram machine that they're using is the best around, right? They don't. They don't advertise the, the machine is the best around. You would think that they would say, we are going to be so gentle with you and, and, and caring of you, and this is a private thing, and we're going to make sure that customer service is the best. That's what they're advertising, right? Nope. So they're not advertising the machine. They're not advertising the care. Maybe they're going to advertise the technicians that are going to look at the images that come from the mammograms, that they're the smartest, best people around. No, that's not it either. You know what they're advertising? Mammogram today results the same day. Why? Because they know that when Amanda got her mammogram, we wanted to know what the results were. Because we know that things can be found. We know that waiting is really, really hard. And so this group of doctors say, listen, the most important thing with regards to the mammogram isn't the machine, isn't the technician, isn't the customer care. The greatest thing with a mammogram is the waiting. Can I tell you, Amanda had her mammogram. Uh, we got their news on Thursday. And here was the news. You need to see a doctor. And you know when that doctor's appointment was? Monday. And you know what the blessed nurse said? Have a great weekend. You know what I mean? You know, we didn't know anything. We just knew that they wanted to see us. You think we had fun that weekend? No. We had something hanging over us. And on Monday, we're going to go to the doctor and we're going to hear whatever manner it was. And it was cancer and we were going to deal with it. But the waiting was the hardest part. And they get it. And so they say, listen, when we advertise these things, what we're going to say is we know waiting is hard for you. So we're going to help. We're going to shorten that time so that you don't have to be a part of that waiting. We go back to the story. Two whole years. Oh my gosh. Two years. Is that, is today the day I'm going to be released? He waited and he waited and he waited. Listen, you have two responses to waiting. You can grow bitter or you can become better. And some of us right now are in a waiting room because God hasn't answered our question. God hasn't dealt with our situation and we've gotten bitter. Nowhere in the text does it say Joseph started cursing in the prison. Nowhere does it say, listen, I hate my brothers. They put me in Egypt and now I find myself here. I hate Potiphar's wife. That scoundrel of a woman says that I did something that I didn't do. I hate all of them. I hate the cupbearer. He said he was going to tell Pharaoh about this and he's forgotten me. We don't see any name calling. We don't see him growing bitter in any way. He waits. Some of us right now are shaking our fists at God. We're angry at everybody. We're bitter. 
Because God's answer hasn't come. And we find ourselves sitting in a waiting room. And there's nothing worse than waiting. Maybe you're waiting on grades. Maybe you're waiting on an acceptance letter. Maybe you're waiting on a job offer. Maybe you're waiting on loan papers. Maybe you're waiting on a pregnancy uh, test. Maybe you're waiting on, on, on someone to ask you to marry you. Maybe you're waiting on the right person. Maybe you're waiting on medical report. There's all manner of waiting rooms in our lives. And we can grow bitter when those answers don't come. Or we can get better. Joseph got better. Here's the reason or how he did it. Notice, we get better, not bitter. First of all, when we rehearse God's provisions. Let me close this out with four short things for you to think through. Joseph could have gotten angry. He could have gotten bitter. But if he took some time and looked over his life and the life of his family around him, he would see that God has been with him. He would remember his great-grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, who waited and waited and waited for a son, a promised son. Abraham would be a 100. Sarah would be 90. Until they gave birth to Joseph's grandpop. Isaac, God came true. God's plans became reality. If he looked at Isaac's life, he would know when he sat on his grandfather Isaac's lap as a young boy, hey, Grandpa Isaac, will you tell me the story of when your dad took you up to Mount Moriah? How freaked out you got when your dad took you and put you on the altar? Because God said, I'm going to test your faith. I want to see if you believe in my provision. And He puts you on the altar and He's ready to sacrifice you. And then in the thicket you heard the ram. Tell the story again, Granddad. How God provided for you. How as a little boy he would have heard the stories of Jacob. And how God had provided for him over and over again. If he would look at his own life and rewind in his own life, I could have been dead a couple different times. I could have been dead. My brothers could have left me for dead in the pit. My life would have been done. I could have been killed because if if really, if Egyptian law was true, then Potiphar could have had me killed for assaulting his wife. And I'm still alive today. God, you have provided for me so many different times. Why will you not provide for me in the prison cell? You see, some of us are in waiting right now, and we're looking and we're saying, God, what are you doing? And what God wants you to do is look at how good God has been in the past and rehearse those things over and over again. I've always been amazed at my father's steadfastness. My dad never, ever gets frazzled. The world can be coming apart at the seams. And I'll look to my dad and I'll say, Dad, aren't you nervous? And he says, no. And I'm starting to recognize now as I'm going into my 40s that it's so good to have some things in your back pocket of what God has done, right? God says, been there, done that. God's taken care of that. God's ministered to us. Man, we've had financial questions before and God's been there. We've always had food. We've always had clothes. He's always taking care of us. Well, hey, Dad, we got this medical thing going on. God has been faithful. I didn't share this with the first service. Here's extra credit for you. And he's not here, so he won't hear it. My son had to write a personal narrative, uh, 13 years old, okay? I, I think my son's mind is food and video games, okay? That's all I think's going on there. And he has to write this narrative, and he writes the narrative of what was going on in his heart and mind um, during my wife's diagnosis of cancer. 
And he speaks very vividly of the day that uh, Amanda and I had already gone to the hospital early uh, for her surgery. And I come to learn, and we're blown away by this, what was going on in our 13-year-old son. He is scared to death. He's really nervous for his mom. And he comes down, and my dad is there to take care of our boys. My mom and my dad are there to get them to school and everything. And my dad's playing loud music on his phone. And he's celebrating. And Noah comes down and is, and is righteously indignant. Grandpa, don't you know today is mom's surgery? Don't you know she's got cancer? Don't you know this cancer could kill her? How could you play celebratory music? And my dad says, listen, Noah, we have a God who can defeat cancer. And that's why we're celebrating. And my son said my grandpa's view of God was a whole lot bigger than mine. And man, I fell apart. Oh my gosh. This kid's more about, more about God than he is video games. You see, we need to recognize that we can celebrate amidst times of trouble because we've got a God who's bigger than prison. We've got a God who's bigger than waiting. We've got a God who's bigger than medical conditions, than unemployment, than marital strife or relational struggle. We have a God who can do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask for or imagine. So we trust Him. We put our faith in Him. Number two, we rehearse the things of, that God has done. We remember God's promises. What's the promise that Joseph needs to remember? To take the words from Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream. What are you talking about? Joseph had two dreams. Two dreams that hadn't come true. He knows they're from God. He knows that they're bigger than just dreams that he had because he ate pepperoni pizza too late in the night. He knows these are life markers that there's going to be a moment where Joseph's brothers and father are going to bow down to him. He doesn't know what it looks like, but he knows God has announced it and it's going to happen. And here's the thing. When he's sitting in prison, he knows it hasn't come to fruition yet. And God has promised things to us that haven't come to fruition. You say, listen, my life is totally messed up. I'm not enjoying anything, and my existence is nothing. God says, I've got great and precious promises for you. Yes, your life may be difficult, but what awaits you? He tells the prophet, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. There's a promise. So your life may be difficult. The next 70 years may be a trial for you. But awaiting you on the other side of eternity is blessings unimagined. And so he has this dream. And he knows this dream hasn't come true. And that God is not done with him. Joseph could have confidence the prison cell wasn't the last chapter in Joseph's life. Here's why. Notice the third thing. Recognize that God is still active. He could have said... I had this dream. I must have misunderstood it. It wasn't for me. Maybe it was that pepperoni pizza I had. Here's the problem. God is utterly faithful, even though Joseph's in a waiting room, to show Joseph around him that God is still active. How? He gave two men next to Joseph dreams. And unlike Joseph... He tells the interpretation to Joseph so Joseph can tell him. And then what happens? Help me out. Those dreams come true. So what happens to Joseph? Joseph can say, hey, God gave me these dreams. My dreams haven't come true. 
But God gave these brothers dreams. Their dreams came true. Therefore, because my dream is still untrue, is still hasn't come true, but their dreams have. Therefore, I can trust that the dream God gave me will come true as well. Does that make sense? We can trust, and here's why. We can trust in the waiting room of life when we're sitting in a small group. The bitter person says during the prayer time, I'm bitter, I'm angry, this, this hasn't happened, God hasn't been faithful. And then so-and-so, Sally stands up and says, listen, I've got an answered prayer. We were praying for this thing, and God answered prayer. The bitter person says this, well, what makes them so great that God would answer their prayer? Never liked Sally all that much. What makes her so great? What makes her so wonderful? Why does God love her more than He loves me? The better person says, if God's doing that for Sally, then surely He'll do that for me. Joseph said, listen, my friends had a dream. God answered their dream. Then He will surely answer my dream. He recognized that while God may not be moving a lot in your life, that if you look at the life around you, God's doing a whole lot. And if you get a sto- if you get anything from the story of Joseph, you will recognize that your life is but a part of a mosaic of God being active in the lives of all manner of people. Finally, we need to respond with faithfulness. In those waiting room times, we need to rehearse, we need to remember, we need to recognize, but we need to respond. The text tells us that Joseph remained faithful. He didn't stop working. He didn't stop serving. He didn't stop honoring the warden and his fellow prisoners. He didn't go, you know what? I've been forgotten, so I give up and just start acting out and causing all sorts of rebellion. He was a dependable guy who was made known of all in the prison to be the best he could be. And in our waiting times, we can get bitter. We can kick the dirt. We can throw things. We can become angry. Or we can continue to serve and honor God. As an aside, Joseph gives us a picture of every Christian. We are waiting for our release. And at a time unknown to us, a promise release has been given to us. One day Jesus Christ is going to come in the clouds and release us from the prison we find ourselves in. And we will be placed in the throne room of glory. We can be bitter and angry and kick the dirt and say, how long do we have to wait? I can't stand it. Or we can be busy serving and evangelizing and caring and ministering and sharing all the while waiting for the coming of the Lord. Here's what I know to be true. It is better to be busy while you wait because time moves faster than when you sit there and sulk. Joseph sped the coming of his release because he worked hard. We are told we we move the hands of time while we are busy for the Lord instead of waiting, sitting somewhere saying, Lord, when will it come? We've learned today about caring, about trusting, and about waiting. Now the hard work is applying it to your life. What area do you need to care more? What area do you need to trust God more? What issue in your life do you need to wait on the Lord? I give this to you as sensible people now to apply to your lives and apply to your specific circumstances. And I pray that the Lord would lead you. The Holy Spirit would empower you to do so. But my time is done, so let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And I thank you for this little snippet of Scripture that teaches us so much. 
Lord, I pray, pray we would apply these things to our lives. For those that find themselves in some manner of prison, some manner of waiting, that we would give our trust to You. You are wholly dependable. Lord, that we would not be like the cupbearer for whatever reason that he forgot you, uh, Joseph in prison. That we would not forget those around us. That we would care and minister to those that are hurting who find themselves in dire circumstances and situations. Lord, we know to have this kind of heart that endures and this heart that, that cares and ministers to the hurting means we have to have your heart. And so, Lord, empower us by your Spirit. Fill us with the fruits of the Spirit that would enable us to live differently. Lord, I pray that as happened in Joseph's life, that people would look at our lives and see the blessing of the Almighty is over us. That they may see that we care differently. That we are more concerned, that we're more loving than maybe the average individual. And when it's asked of us why we care or why we serve in the manner that we do, that we would say, as Joseph did, does not this come from the Lord Himself? It's because of You, God, we do these things. It's because of Your example. Thank You for showing us the example through Your Son, Jesus Christ, who endured great struggle and didn't allow distance or sin to keep Him away from us, but became flesh and made His dwelling among us and served us and loved us and cared for us and released us from the prison of sin while enduring in a prison of His own. Thank You for that example and, and that modeling that we may live differently as a result. Now send us forth from this place, Lord, hopefully a bit different, challenged, inspired in a way to honor and serve You in greater ways. We love You and give You the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.